Hello, this is the Crush Monocle Podcast. I am your host, Coop, and this is my co-host, John. Hey, everyone. We are a podcast where we talk about stuff, all the stuff. All the Most stuff. of the time, music. Our <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, We have a guest on this episode. Uh, he is an audio mastermind, uh, both in front of the mic and behind the mixing table. Uh, he's uh, fronted bands such as Big Black, Shellac. Uh, he's worked with artists such as Fagazi, Jawbreaker, Joanna Newsom, Cheap Trick, Sun, Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. I could literally go on for days for the thousands of bands this guy's worked with. Yeah. He is the founder of uh, Electrical Audio Studio right here in Chicago, a vital part of uh, the Chicago music scene uh, that's very dear to my heart, just as I know it's probably as much as it is. But yeah, uh, let's welcome uh, Mr. Steve Albini. Hello there. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we know that uh, you've been a pretty busy guy. Uh, Wait, here, Coop, here hold recently. on. How come I don't get a cool ass introduction like that? You just, you know, you build, you build Steve up. You just, you know, you're like, here's John. <laughs> Fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, John's cool too. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But he hasn't produced one of the most important records of the '90s of Nirvana's in utero. <laughs> uh oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I'll I'll start with you, uh, uh, Steve, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. What have you been listening to lately, music-wise? Um, the last week or so, I've been in session, so I've just been listening to my, like, when you're in session, you're listening to somebody else's music all day, and <laughs> you're doing it in a kind of a forensic fashion, like you're not really listening for funsies, you know? So it's it's exceptionally taxing on your listening and attention span. So I haven't been listening to anything for fun in the last, probably in the last 10 days. I've just been, you know, you finish in the evening having listened to music with acute attention for 12 hours and, you know, guess what you don't want to do immediately when you get home. Yeah. Yeah. That right. makes sense. That makes sense. There was a, there was a, um, there was an instructor at Columbia College in their recording program, an old school um, uh, live sound and recording engineer named Malcolm, what was his name? Malcolm Chisholm. And uh, he was often asked, you know, if he went out to go see bands or if he went out to go see live music um, in his free time. Uh, and his standard response was, do you know what a hooker doesn't do on her night off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes so sense. It's, a, it's, it is kind of a strange like penance that you have to pay um, for the privilege of being a recording engineer is that your the attention that you can devote to music is, is burned up uh, during working hours. And then it's, you know, you kind of need to come go into a void of music for a while before you can re-enter the sort of fan or enthusiast frame of mind for music. Yeah, I have to like refresh your ears or whatever, right? Take it's, a break. Yeah, I, I've heard that. I think that's a fine expression, but I don't know. I don't think it's just a physical thing. I don't think it's just you're fatiguing the, the your ear, your hearing sense organs. I don't think that's it. I think there's a there's an aspect of working on music with your full concentration where it, it burns out your ability to pay close attention to something. 
and you're oh. only able to listen sort of passively or um, meekly. Okay. And I don't particularly like that kind of listening experience where music is just sort of going on undirected around me and I'm just suffering it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Right. That makes sense. For sure. Okay, fair. Well, John, what have you been listening to? I have two things that I kind of want to plug. Um, they're, I'm still kind of sticking with like my heavy, noisy stuff. Um, the new, I, I don't know how to pronounce this band name correctly. Maybe I should have looked it up, but it's the band name's Tuscar and the album name is Matriarch. They're kind of this just heavy, crazy wall of sound distortion duo from, um, I think, I'm not sure where in the UK, but I think London. Um, super loud, super big, big yelly vocals, just walls and walls of guitar distortion. It's it's pretty crushing. It's cool. So, and then my other one is uh, Fire Breather's new album, Dwell in the Fog, which is kind of somewhat similar. It has a little bit of a Macedon vibe to it, um, but it's more stonery, I guess, kind of a stoner kind of. It has a little bit of kind of a sludge to it too, but they're both worth checking out if you're into like heavy kind of big stuff. So uh, the album that I listened to uh, the most this past month is the new one from Hath, H A T H. Okay, they're from uh, New Jersey. Their new album is uh, All That Was Promised. It's on uh, Willow Tip Records. Uh, they're kind of a black metal type of thing, uh, but I think you're not going to go R and B this time. I'm not going R and B this time. Yeah. Hey, I got Hey, I still have a reputation to live up to here. <laughs> uh, it's a really good uh, black metal album, uh, but it has a lot of thrash elements, cool. uh, kind of punk almost. Uh, just really super heavy. Um, kind of reminds me of early Testament. From, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's that's when I've been spinning the most. Cool. Uh, uh, Steve, do you like uh, heavier bands like metal or black metal or punk or anything uh, like that? That kind. I have a slightly crippled appreciation for heavy metal. Like when I came of age in music in the late seventies, mm-hmm. um, I basically just laughed at heavy metal. I thought it was absurd <laughs> and ridiculous. And that, and it's taken me a very long time to, um, to give any of that music or a fair hearing. Um, I now quite like Black Sabbath, especially like some of the live footage I've seen of young Black Sabbath, I think is really astonishing. Um, I really like ACDC in the classic period. Um, There's a handful of really stunning moments uh, in Led Zeppelin's catalog, like that sort of old school classic hard rock. Mm -hmm you know, sort of proximate heavy metal stuff, things like that, I think are, can be quite engaging. Like, as soon as they go high! Yeah. There's a, I'm drawing a blank now because I can't remember this band name, but um, there was a a post-punk band from, I want to say Chapel Hill, who called their album The White Octave. Because that was the the generic term for a, a, a white dude trying to be dramatic in a in yeah. a metal band with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that really, really hard to bear for me. Like there, right, for, sure, there for sure. There there is literally one band that incorporated that kind of 
like shrieking singing uh, that I whose riffs I admire and it and it's the band Budgie um, who have some of the most slaying most absolutely taco riffs uh, and they but they have this like reedy high voice over the top of it. I think what I like about that dude singing in that context is that he's kind of bad at it. Yeah. Uh, and it does. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Not Bruce yeah. Dickinson. It's absolutely not Bruce Dickinson. It's, you know, it's absolutely not, uh, you know, like what's his fuck from rainbow. Oh, a Dio. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no, no, none of that. It's right. like a guy whose voice is kind of thin and reedy and he's fucking going for it. And it just sounds like, it sounds raspy. So like yeah. the heavy stuff that I like is all either like extremely old guy music. I mean, I'm, I'm quite old. I'm going to be 60 years old this summer. Right. So uh, like it's all either very old hard rock stuff, like that kind of stuff, or like the contemporary music that kind of references that uh, gold, the sort of the classic golden hard rock era. Like, I quite like bands like Sleep and High on Fire and, um, cool. Cool. you know, to a lesser extent, uh, like some of the other, some of the other sort of doomy, heavy mm. kind of bands. I did an album with the band Sun and yeah. their riffs yeah. are fucking monstrous, like really just crushing. Yeah, just impeccable riffs. And I, I yeah. specifically appreciate that it takes like, 10 or 15 minutes to get through the riff. Like I read, that's one of the, <laughs> right. about them. Yeah. like they, they tax your attention span. They don't just like doodle it out for you. You know, right. you have to display some patience to find out what each note is, you know, and that I really appreciated. There was a, sure. there was a band that was kind of informed by that Sabbathy um, sort of stuff in the nineties and early two thousands called dead meadow who um, had that quality of like being very elastic with the riffs, like the riffs mm. were really lazy to get out. Like it, you didn't, it, you know, it, it wasn't just like a riff and then, uh, a, a, you know, a, a, a vocal line and then another riff and a vocal line. It was like, they'd let you wallow in it for a good long time. <laughs> wallow and is that, a good word. Yeah, I like yeah, that. I, right. That is an aspect of, if I'm looking for something, some kind of hard rock to listen to, what I'm looking for is that sort of immersive quality yeah, where what I'm listening to is going to demand my attention rather than something that just sort of fits a paradigm and kind of sounds like Priest or whatever. Like I don't really, or like kind of sounds like Metallica or, or like kind of fits in an idiomatic like whole, like that kind yeah. of shit doesn't do anything for me. I, I mean, and uh, part of that is so, is like a sociological thing. Like the people that were into that kind of music that, that I was, that were around me when I was forming my appreciation for music in, in punk rock, like those people were fucking idiots and they were, <laughs> and they were like branded people that I didn't want to have anything to do with. So anything they liked was off limits because they were fucking idiots. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> and it's taken me a long time to develop my own appreciation for any of that stuff. Right, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, uh, I'm a similar way. I, I, it sounds super petty, but sometimes the fans of of certain bands or certain styles of music really turn me off, even before I get to the band. Yeah, so I, it's yeah. weird. It's always. I, I read something. Somebody posted something the other day, and I thought it was true. They said, um, it, "For almost every kind of music, the fans are the worst thing about it." Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. The, 
with the singular exception of the insane clown posse. They, <laughs> they're, they're the they're the best fans. Like, like, I mean, the, the juggalos themselves are all like very good natured people, right. and like I love the sense of community that they've built for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, that music sure. is fucking unspeakable. You know. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> for sure, that's awesome. Well. I- that actually is a good segue into what one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was when uh, in your studio, you've worked with thousands of different bands from thousands of different kinds of music, basically. True. Your story picks up. So uh, how, what is the first thing that you do? Um, like, how do you approach a recording with a band? Do you, do you listen to their demos first? Do you it's, make them play live or? It's rare that I need to like, get up to speed with something. And typically that would be in a session where there is some complicating element to it. Like, okay, we have to do this piece of music that is very involved and it has to fit a certain time frame because it's going to be synchronized with a video piece or, or, uh, you know, like we have some very specific strictures that we observe when we're recording. There's, we have rules within our band that we want to observe or like when there are, when there's like extra musical elements that complicate the, the, the performance or the recording, okay. I need to be appraised of all that sort of stuff. If it's just a matter of like, what does their music sound like? I, I don't give a fiddler's fuck. Like I really, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. there are, there are some very specific idiomatic things like heavy music has all these little idioms and, and sub idioms. Right. Mm-hmm. And, some very specific things that you have to do in order to fit a paradigm that makes a band feel like their music is complete. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's important to get that conversation over with, like, what is it, what is a must for your music and what are the, you know, what are the no fly zones for your music? Um, So that I don't find myself in the position of like trying to set something up to suit a sort of general musical paradigm, Mm -hmm. but end up violating some part of that band's aesthetic. Like I did a session not that long ago with an Italian band. Um, I say not that long ago, it was pre COVID. So it was a couple of fucking years ago now, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a, a, uh, Italian band and they were, um, fairly, fairly conventional hard rock, um, band. And they said they were familiar with the records that I'd worked on and they listed and they named some records that I had worked on and the aesthetic on those records that they'd mentioned as like sort of references mm. had a, they, all of those bands had a kind of, a kind of booming quality, like big booming ambient open drum sound, mm. uh, like very like uh, broad and projecting guitar, like not, tiny little needly guitar, but like big bully sounding guitar. Right. Yeah. Um, and so when we were working on their music, like I had that in the back of my mind is that this is some fraction of their aesthetic is that they want to have this big booming sound. Yeah. And then when we got to the mixing stage, um, the drummer kept, um, trying to move things in a, in a, in a direction that was sort of contra that, like a very dry, very seventies studio isolated, uh, drum sound, like you yeah, know, yeah. crisp and dry, and short and percussive sound, and the whole session had not been conducted with that in mind, right? 
Yeah, and that, like you, you know, biked it a different yeah. way, right? Like I consider that a, a failure on my part. Like I didn't discern, I didn't specifically grill the drummer about what he wanted his drums to sound like. Okay. From the context of the rest of the music, I got the impression that he that like they wanted their drums to be sort of booming and ambient at to, and fitting in with this aesthetic. But no, he had a very specific sort of Nico McBrain, like uh, super dry, super tight, very close up percussive sound in mind. But at no point in the session had we done anything that would have accommodated that kind of sound. And so I was sort of right. having to like build it up at the last minute, you know, when we have the shortest amount of time available in the session, I have to try to like defeat all of the work that I've been doing all week. Um, so that that's the kind of problem that you get into if you don't have a full enough conversation with the band. Makes um, sense. And there, you know, there was a language barrier and there was a time crunch and, you know, mm. nobody was playing on their own equipment. So everybody was slightly uncomfortable in the beginning and they'd never met me before. And so there was like trepidation there. I can make a lot of excuses for it, but it still boils down to it being a failure on my part for not getting that information clearly up front. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, that makes sense. So, yeah. So like the, the preparation for a session is a conversation, like talking to the band about what they want their record to sound like. Hmm. What kind of music do they listen to? What are they emulating? Like, what are their who are their heroes? Right. Like, are there things that about their musical setup that right now, like their equipment or their like their performance, that they're not happy with? Is there something right. that they're not happy with that they're trying to optimize? Right. Um, or are they pretty set in their ways and they have their shit together and they just want to knock it out? Like all of that stuff should come out in conversation. And that's like the lion's share of my preparation with that a makes band. Sense. That learning makes sense. what their expectations are. Yeah. Trying to get tuned into their aesthetic. Um, you know, making sure that at every, at every step, like they're hearing what we're doing in a sort of a tentative fashion. Like, is this good? Do you right. like, would you like it to be brighter, darker, heavier, faster, slower, drier, wetter? Yeah. Like, you know, what 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 you're listening to is your record so let's right. make sure that it's mm. correct you know so that it's a it's basically about that communication as far as like the style of music or the notes they play or how fast they play or all of that sort of stuff that's all all those artistic decisions are in their hands like i can't give them any advice for that sort of stuff i'm right. bad at all of those decisions <laughs> <laughs> So do you ever um, do you ever give like input though like when it comes to like an arrangement like would they say hey Steve what do I do with this you know it's extremely rare I, I, and I'll and I'll I'll explain there's a number of levels to this but one of them right. is most of the time I'm working on an extremely compressed condensed schedule right yeah that's like a week so, or two weeks tops right most of the time I mean, or... two weeks is an extraordinary luxury okay okay is a is a is a reveling in it luxury. Okay. Okay. And two weeks is an extraordinary luxury. Okay. I'm knocking, got it. Got I'm it. knocking albums out in three or four days. Like I just did a 50 minute album in four days. That, that's, that's the insane. Wrapping up tonight. Um, and it, that's that is like absolutely par for the course. Like three or four days to knock an album out. Mm -hmm. You're bear in mind. I'm dealing mostly with independent bands that are funding their for projects sure. themselves. For sure. For sure. bands that are on small labels where they they have to be efficient like they just yeah. in order for the, the project to be viable everybody has to be efficient 
Right. So, you know, the, the pace of work has to be very quick. The days are long, the pace is quick. And that means that you don't have time to fuck around with a bunch of random options. You don't have time to fuck around with, mm. well, let's try it that way. And then what do you think about trying it the other way? And then we can, you know, let's just, there isn't right. time for that kind of falderall. Yeah, you that makes sense. That makes fit sense. on your hands and chop wood, you know? Yeah. Do you, do you miss like having like, you know, your major label like days or back in the day when you'd have these fucking big ass, like, you know, I mean, long production schedules or whatever? I'm really used to doing things in this like sort of, you know. Yeah like efficient, you know, the, the furnace of the underground music scene is driven by parsimony, by being people being cheap about right. what they're doing. Right? For sure. For sure. For sure. So that's the, that's the coal in the furnace is that everything has to be efficient and has to be inexpensive and has to be maximizing the, eff- the effect for the amount of money spent. Right. And most of the people that I work with are, have internalized that. Like yeah, they of course, have their shit. Rehearse their shit. They're not writing stuff in the studio. They're yeah, they're done. Like the songs are done when they come in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the only things that ever end up being like in a typical session these days, like the the things that end up being kind of sem- semi spontaneous, mm. are things like where there's a, a potential for a backing vocal, but it hasn't mm. been worked out. Yeah, and that just that one thing, like that one element of that one song can take, an, you know, several times more time and energy than it took to record the entire band. Yeah. Like a half day just to get that track. Yeah. But that's the, for some reason that seems to be the element that people think that they can just wing it on. Like, uh, (laughs) like nobody would think (laughs) they don't rehearse their overdubs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No one, no one thinks like, yeah, I was thinking about picking up a violin. Maybe I could play violin on it. <laughs> <laughs> that hard. You know? Right, right, like, right. Nobody right. thinks yeah. that way. That's but funny. like you yeah. throw them a drawer full of maracas or something, and they just, everybody is convinced that they'd be fucking great at it. Yeah, you know? like, I could yeah. fucking nail this. I'm gonna think. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, like those little elements can be kind of frustrating. Like they add very little to the to the overall project. Right, like right, whether right. somebody says "ooh" behind you while you're singing or not, adds very little to the experience of listening. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not going to make or break an album. There, yeah, but if you're going to put an "ooh" there, you have to fucking work it out. You have to figure out who's going to do it, where they're going to start, where they're going to stop, what note they're singing. Are you going to be "ooh"s? Are they going to double it? Are they going to? Are we going to have a harmony? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> it's those little things. Those little things are the thing that nibble away that at the efficiency of a session, like not having your, your stuff organized in advance, all the the major stuff. Like you hear these stories about these lavish sessions where bands like write an album in the studio or they take a week to do a guitar solo or whatever. Yeah. None of these underground and independent bands that I'm working with, no matter what style of music they're working on, nobody is fucking around to that degree. Right. Right. It simply doesn't happen. They have their shit together. They, you know, right. It's just another example of how the two paradigms are just so different that they're not even really doing, they're not playing the same game. Did you run into any of those type of issues though? Like back in the day on like any of the like major label stuff or when you were working with like, bigger I mean, budgets or bands or whatever, like where you're working on a guitar solo for a week or like you just said, like, 
I mean, the most lavish, the most most indulgent thing I ever did was I worked on a Jimmy Page and Robert Plant session. We just mm. we were talking about that right before you got on. Yeah, yeah, killer we were, record. Yeah, we were talking about that right before you got on. So th- these are people who have literally bottomless money, right? Right, mm. right, right. So they don't have to be prepared. They don't have to have their shit together. They could just work it out in the studio, right? For two grand a day, and, you know, treat it like a rehearsal room or whatever. Yeah, like that's no problem for them, right? But I have to say, like, I, that was a very long session, like all in um, from the moment I first started working with them until I like flew home. It was about five months. Mm. Uh, so that was a very long session, very involved, very long session. But I have to say they were given the context that they're working in. Mm-hmm. Like They were efficient and they like they were quite demanding about what they wanted. Like it wasn't a lazy experience by any means. Yeah. And it was, it was very demanding on me as an engineer. Like every day I would come in and there would be like, they would have things that they would have expected me to have prepared for them from the day before. Like, Uh let's let's hear the rough mix of that take from last night or oh shit um, okay so you're like you need to be like mixing it at the end of the session at night yeah so i would have have to have stuff prepared for them every day now occasionally and maybe even the majority of the time they didn't in want to hear the progress that i had made in their absence like the majority (laughs) of the time they told me to do it the, you know, when the next day came up, there was something else, something new to work on. So let's get into this new thing, right? You're like, I did this for no reason. <laughs> but the thing is, like, if it had ever, and it, but when they wanted to hear it, I had to have it for them, right? For and sure. If, yes, of course. If I had ever dropped the ball, like it was like, oh yeah, I was oh, tired yeah. to do that. I would yeah. have been on the, I would have been on the next flight, plane home. Like they would have put me on the next thing smoking out of town, <laughs> and then I would have been fired. <laughs> right. For sure. For yeah. sure. <laughs> did you ever did you ever feel at any time with uh well for those who, who are listening uh the album was Walking into Clarksdale from yeah. uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page uh yeah. come out in 98 uh fantastic album it still holds up today i listened to it here recently uh, i had it when it when it came out i had it on a cassette actually oh there you go uh, nice <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah it's still it's really good but when you recorded that with them did you ever feel uh, at any point like oh i'm getting fired today like this is the day that i'm getting fired no, I, I mean, the boundaries were very clearly set. Like, it's their record. They're calling the shots. They're telling me what to do. That was mm-hmm. clear from day one. Like, it, it was ne- there was never any, there was never any element of it being a record of mine that I was doing in collaboration with them. It was, right. I, I was, you know, a, as purely as I can describe it, I was engineering for them as producers. And so what, what we worked on on a day-to-day basis is whatever they wanted to work on and mm. what they, you know, like the, their aesthetic, like, like small things, like, you know, like I would set things up in a way that would allow for an ambient recording of mm. say the, of the whole band playing together. Right. right then when right, we right. play back, I would demonstrate that for them. So like, you know, this is a dry playback with everything as clean and dry as close as possible. And then this is the ambient sound that I recorded as well, just so that you know you have that as an option. And that suited them. Like they were happy to have like options available, but also happy to have somebody who was like not pressing them for an aesthetic. That makes, and, sense. That makes sense. And I, you know, I credit them a lot for being as open-minded as they were 
and for for being as like in the moment of making that record as they were it sounds like an indulgent thing to spend five months making a record but bear in mind they hadn't made a record in the studio together in many years and they were exactly sort of relearning the process and re-familiarizing re themselves with each other's predilections yeah and then they never made a record with me before so like right um you know like they didn't they didn't know if i was necessarily up to what they what they were going to expect from me and i'm pleased that i was able to cut the mustard like it's a you know that's a that gives me some confidence in what I, in my abilities and stuff but yeah i wasn't in charge and i'm there's a weird thing about um mature music mature bands and musicians where they have a long history and where they've got you know where they've sort of made a name for themselves right and i found myself in this position a few times where like their reputation is made right they've made some of the greatest records of all time yeah of course yeah. One, like, and anybody that buys this record that they're making now is going to have all of those amazing records that they made when they were like full of piss and vinegar as twenty. Yeah, like someone's not going to stumble upon this as their first like experience. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. So they're in the really uncomfortable position of sort of competing with themselves in in the sense of okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like yeah, the last time Jimmy Page and Robert Plant made a record together, it was an enormous number one smash Led Zeppelin album that had classics on it that are still revered. Right, right, mm -hmm. for sure. They're going for into sure. the studio again to make another record. And it's going to be inevitably, it's going to be compared to this, right? You know, this body of work, which is kind of defined rock music, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what what bothers me about that juxtaposition is that it it's almost inevitable that people are going to be disappointed. Like disappointed is a strong word, and I don't mean it in the sense that they're going to think that the that. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant have lost it in any sense. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about like a record that is going to be passively or actively compared with a scrutinized for sure. Scrutinized yeah. music ever made, right? Yeah. So inevitably those that record is going to be found wanting by some people. And I think that's unfair. Right. Because what you'd be listening to otherwise is fucking stone silence. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yep. So, and I, I feel like a lot of mature artists are kind of held to that standard, the kind of this awkward standard. Like you made these records, you know, hot out of the gate when you didn't know what you were doing. And those records blew our minds because you were full of piss and vinegar and you had all these new and hot ideas. Right. And now 40 years later, in your maturity, you're making this record that has got like that wealth of knowledge kind of rolled into it. And you're mm. doing it from a perspective of, of someone who has seen the hell that he wrought. Right. So right. you've got the mature perspective on it. And everybody's right? got their magnifying glass on it too. You know, I just, yeah, I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's a, a mean way to listen to music. You know, like I've done, like I did records for, I've done, I've done sessions with, like Fred Schneider did a record in the nineties that I really loved um, called just Fred. It was a solo record and it was a bunch of younger um, punk and punk influenced musicians who revered Fred Schneider, who were playing in his backing band, right? right. Really enthusiastic about being on the session, people giving it their all because they're working with one of their heroes. Right. Right. And 
you know, but that record was kind of treated perfunctorily by the record label. It was like, well, we're obliged to let Fred Schneider do a solo album. <laughs> yeah, right. Record, but there know? was some passion into it and it just kind of got dismissed, right? Exactly. And I, I, again, it's that same thing. It's like, you know, like, this is a Fred, this is a contractually obligated Fred Schneider solo record. Right. It's not going <laughs> to be a big smash hit. So I guess we'll just fucking put it out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> not promote it, just we get and it done, we're done. <laughs> and that, you know, that I find that kind of treatment of people like that who have a body of work that, that deserves your fucking respect, you know? Right, for sure. I get it. Yeah. I, I yeah. feel like that's kind of that that mentality was much more of a corporate thing than than the like the record scene of today. Uh and yeah, I I guess I'm just talking in circles around the, the, the point that when people have an extraordinary body of work, um, what they're doing is adding to it. Right. They're not diminishing it right. by whatever they do at this point, you know? Right. Mm. So were, were you surprised at all that like Jimmy Page and Robert Plant like hit you up to like be the engineer slash like, yeah, mm -hmm. I couldn't have been. I couldn't have been more baffled. Honestly. Did they say why? Like, hey, we listened to so and so record, and we love this record, and we want this drum sound, or like, um, what I were know, they? I know Robert Plant was familiar with Big Black. Like, they did an interview when Big Black was in its heyday, and mm. talking about how he, he loved that our last record, and blah blah blah. Mm. Uh, so he was familiar with me at least glancingly in that okay. way. Okay. Okay. Then. Uh, he talked to um, Jimmy about me working on the record, and Jimmy said, I've never heard anything. <laughs> so, like, the two of them called me, um, and I, we just talked about sort of working philosophy for making a record. And I was like, well, my, my skills are all honed by making records where the band is all playing live. Right. And, right. and Jimmy Page is like, oh, that's nice to hear. You know, like, <laughs> very dry, very like kind of like slightly sinister, right? right. Like that ticked a box for him, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, and I like, you know, I, I don't like to grind things away with overdubs. I like to do takes of the song until the band is happy, right. and then whatever decoration we need to do on top of it. And then you know, but I don't, I don't like to grind away trying to idealize something, and that appealed to them. And then they asked me to send them some sample recordings. Mm -hmm. And so I sent them like a half a dozen records. What did uh, you send? Do you remember? I don't, <laughs> I don't specifically remember. Yeah, no, um, yeah, no worries. I do know like that Robert Plant specifically asked me to send him um, records that were primarily acoustic. Okay. And records that had, were recorded female vo vocals. Okay. Mm. So I, I, I would have sent, um, let's see, I think I sent uh, some, for the hard rock side of things, I think I sent some Jesus Lizard records hmm. and the band Mule. I did a couple of records with them yeah, that I thought yes, were yeah. smart and then really good. I sent those. Yep. Um, and then for the more acoustic stuff, I'd done some records with... Um, Jim O'Rourke and David Grubbs under the name mm -hmm. Gabriel Soul. That was like an acoustic abstract project. I did. I sent that. 
I had some other like sort of acoustic folk stuff that I had done cool. that I sent. Um, cool. Yeah, I just, you know, an assortment yeah. of things that I had done up to that point. Right. And then they called me back again, another conference call and said, yeah, let's do a session and see how it goes. That's we so want to start, you know, we want to finish by Christmas. Um, so let's get started. <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, hold your horses there. Why don't we just do a weekend first and see how you guys like me? Oh, but yeah. Okay. Instead okay. Instead of yeah, being, like wrapping okay. in for four fucking months or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. We'll do a couple of songs, do like two or three songs in a weekend. See yeah. if you like working with me. See if you're happy with the results. Yeah. And then we'll go from there. And so that's what we did. They booked a studio that was a place called Rack Studios. It was it was a, a big bubblegum hit machine kind of studio in the set early 70s. Like um, Susie Quattro and The Sweet and all of those kind of bands recorded there mm-hmm. in the early 70s. Yeah. And they had a record label that was kind of associated with that kind of hard rocks slash bubblegum sort of stuff. Um, so it was a known quantity as a studio, like they okay. remembered it back in the day. Yeah. And it, ha- it had the, the benefit of being walking distance from Robert Plant's London flat. So oh, of course, <laughs> of course, yeah, whatever's walk. easiest, right? <laughs> we did a couple songs there in that session. Um, and we recorded and mixed two or three songs that made their way to the album, like untouched, like those songs. Oh, wow. were- session like were were added to the album uh when the sequencing was done you know like very efficient recession that that's done put it on the record right yeah the remainder of the record uh i think i got there at the end of june or the beginning of july and i didn't leave until christmas Uh, that's that's a that's a yeah that sounds sounds intense so it was a, a, a lot of work on a daily basis and it right. was high pressure because you're dealing with fucking legends, right? Right. You don't want to drop the ball. Like you don't want to, you don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to give them an, an excuse to sack you. And, and, and also you want to do justice to people who are like trusting you with their music, you know, for like, sure. You literally for could sure. have had anybody and they asked me to work on their record. Like, I'm it's not flattered isn't the right word like I feel a sense of obligation you know I, I mean I gotta I gotta I mean just between us like I gotta give you props for saying like hey let's just do like a quick weekend before you commit to me and make sure that like you know most people would be like well I'm just gonna take this opportunity and this is a big opportunity I don't care but I mean the like last, making it a two-sided relationship you know what I mean yeah, like the last thing that I wanted to do was get into it and have it blow up and then eat shit for it. No, <laughs> no, yeah, that, that right. makes sense. Okay, so, like, I wanted to make sure that it was going to work before, before, like, they tied themselves up and, and tied me up, right? Right. Uh, I, I mean, just, I'll just give you an example of the, the, when I say they could have worked with anybody, there's an anecdote from that session where there's a song that they worked up as a rock band. And then Robert sort of had the idea that they should extend the length of the song and have an instrumental interlude and have an orchestra on it. (laughs) And so that was, let's say that was Thursday morning. They're having this conversation about maybe we should extend this song. Yeah. And then, 
get some strings <laughs> on it or whatever. Right. By the, and and Jimmy Page was very fond of a composer named Claire Fisher. Who did a lot of um, um, a lot of work for soundtracks and but also did arrangements for like I think he did arrangements for the print for Prince and for some other like contemporary people. Um, and Claire Fisher wasn't available, so they got some other first call composer arranger guy to come in that evening and take a recording of the to do, and do a transcription of the arrangement and take a recording of it home. He was in with a demo of it, uh, I wanna say Friday morning, so like less than 24 hours later. Wow. He had a demo that he had made of, a, of this thing in the style of Claire Fisher, right? A lot of discordant stuff mm. and some like, you know, 12 tone moments and that sort of thing. And a score, and Jimmy Page listened to the demo recording following along on the score, made a few suggestions. And then Saturday morning, we had 26 chairs of like the fucking <laughs> London Symphony Orchestra. That's fucking insane. That's so fucking insane. Less than a week from like, maybe it would be good to have strings on here. To, there being fucking, you know, 26 <laughs> of the top symphonic musicians on earth. <laughs> yeah, Get the first violinist who was sort of conducting the session for a fee, like this is a guy who's now doing a session for a fee, right? Agent Robert Plant was Nigel Kennedy. Overdub session for Jimmy Page and Robert yeah, Plant, like three so, days later. <laughs> like, that gives you an example of like the scale of. Like if they want to really draw the bow and like hit the fucking tar, they can do. They can do it. You know, right, like right. Yeah, they, everybody drops what they're doing to work on this record. Exactly. <laughs> it required extraordinary expenditure and great abundance of patience and effort on everybody else's part. Fine, you know that's what we pay them for. You know, right. that's crazy. So, so like that's the kind of when you see something like that, you realize like. Yeah, I'm a fucking pimple on this yeah. session. Like this, like yeah, yeah. that makes perfect <laughs> sense. Yeah. I've uh, I've recorded uh, in a studio in Chicago. I'm not sure if you would be familiar with them or not, but it would be uh, Maxim Sound uh, in Hoffman Estates. Yeah, uh, I've, I've done unless I've, it unless it went by a different name many years ago. Then, yeah, I think uh, it'd be like yeah, Maxim Entertainment, Solid Sound. Yeah. Um, but I've done, I've done. I've heard the name Solid Sound, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I want to say, um, uh, hmm, Phil Bonetti, maybe. Who am I thinking of? Uh, well, when I was there, uh, the guy who ran it was uh, Joe Delillo. So, okay. um, but uh, I've I've done work with my band in that in that session, and how they would always record, they would record the band as a scratch track and they would go back and record everything individually. And, uh, I'm a bass player. So I did all my bass stuff last and, uh, it never was recorded as a full band that you hear. We started that way. Then we just retract everything. Yeah. Um, so that always freaked me out. I always had this pressure on me to now I'm experimenting at the end of everyone. Um, if, a, if, if, a band would come in and want to take that approach in your studio. Would you kind of talk them out of it or would you, you get to, if you're, if you're book, if you've booked our studio mm -hmm. to make a record, you get to have the experience that you want there. Okay. 
like whatever it is. That makes you know? sense. That makes sense. Cause you don't yeah. want to take them out of the comfort zone. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like some, some people have a thing in their head about how they want to do their record. Like they want to be in their shorts in the dead of winter <laughs> with all the white <laughs> and incense. <laughs> <burning. laughs> you know, it's your record, man. Like I, I, Every now and again, um, I get in this situation where, like, I get the impression that the band is, like, kind of nervous about bringing something up. Like, they want to try something, but they don't want to say it, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> you have to kind of draw it out of them. And, you know, I, I regularly have to remind people that that I'm, I work for you. You don't need my permission to do something. On the record. Like, I, you know, this is your record. I mean, you know? I, Steve, I will say this, like, the fact that, like, you know, literally anyone can book you, I think kind of throws people off, you know, like, mm. you know, people are used to, you know, like, you know, I'm not saying you're in this like ilk or anything, but like you were one of, you know, b- the biggest, produ- you're, you know, you're so revered. And I think it freaks people out sometimes when they can be like, oh, you know, my band just booked two, you know, a week or three days with Albini, you know what I mean? Like, I think they come <laughs> into the situation where they're like, oh shit, you know, like, I mean, I would lose my mind. If yeah, I was that's going what to I, mean. I mean. I'm excited hearing to be on this that, podcast. You know? I would freak out if my band was in there, and I mean, I'm like, "Oh, he's going to tell me something, or maybe he's going to tell me my band sucks ass." I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm. Not, I, I'm I feel very, very, very strongly about certain aspects of my practice when I'm working. One of them is that it's your record, right? Right. You're not making this record to please me, right? And, and and, and you shouldn't try because a lot of the music that I like is fucked up and sounds like a bop. <laughs> yeah, you, you, right. don't, you don't want to make, yeah, you don't want to make the but record you should, I want. <laughs> if you can visualize or if you can like describe the ideal experience or the ideal sound or the ideal presentation of your music, like I'll bust my hump to make that, to manifest that somehow for you. I'll make it, mm-hmm. I'll try to make that happen, right? Right, right. And my satisfaction in making a record doesn't come from making a record that I want to play as a fan. Right. Like okay. my professional satisfaction in working on a session comes from pleasing my clients, from making my clients getting their money's worth and getting a record that they're proud of, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That I mean, makes for sense. a lot of people, this is their one shot. For a lot of bands, like 100%. they're going to they're only going to go into the studio once, maybe twice in their, in their whole fucking lives. And so this is it. This is their life's work in front of them. Yeah. And so my obligation is to do it justice and not to like, you know, I, I'm not going to make it weird. I'm not going to like make the experience awkward for them. I want them to really? feel like I, it's very important for me to make sure that the people who I'm working with know that they have the authority to make, to make whatever kind of record they want. Right. And I am an employee of theirs that I'm doing a job and they're paying me to do it. And they don't need my permission for anything in the studio. I rarely contribute ideas to other people's records. I rarely, like if I'm asked to solve a problem, that's about, that's what I'm good at. Like what Mm -hmm. I'm good at is figuring out how to do something that somebody wants to do where there's no clear, obvious way to get it done. Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very good at, at churning through all the techniques uh, necessary to, to make something happen. Mm-hmm. And often I can like sort of 
extrapolate on their idea and have them show me some examples of what they're talking about. And in some cases, it's something that I've all, it's a record that I did. And so I know how it happened. <laughs> they're like, make us sound like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but some, you know, sometimes I, I want everybody that comes to the studio to feel like they got the experience that they desired. Mm. Like if that experience yeah, was, it's super cool, honestly. Come yeah. in and just pump it out and get home in time for pizza. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> if what they want is that they want to torture themselves to make sure that it's perfect before they move on, they get to have that experience. Right. I, I work with some people who are extremely meticulous, like Kim Deal from The Breeders. Yeah. Her records are made in absolutely meticulously. Like every sound. They sound so loose, though. You know what I mean? Like they sound That's loose. Thing. That's her aesthetic. Her aesthetic, I'm talking about Kim Deal. Yeah, of her course. Her aesthetic yeah. is that it's casual and comfortable and exactly. familiar. Yes, yes. Very specifically. Like the, the way that the sounds come across, yeah. the associations that she makes with the sounds according yeah. to where she first heard that reverb on something or like the the particular Boney M record that had this one thing on it that she mm. was very fond of. Yeah. Like, no matter what it is, there's a very specific thing in mind for every sound on wow. every second okay. of the record. And okay. You cannot argue with the results. Those records are oh so no no fuck know. they're 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 the absolute best. Like yeah, sure. but they sure. they just sounded so loose. Like I yeah. would never have imagined. Like, but but it's and and her playing and the band's playing can often be loose. Mm -hmm. But the what doesn't vary is the 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 standard that she holds everything to. Okay. 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 She wants it to be just so, and nobody is going to talk her out of what she wants it to sound like. Okay. Like it's not even on the table. Like you, you're, you're better luck trying to get a mule walk through a fire. It's just not. <laughs> that makes sense. And that's, a lot of crazy. her frustration, like in the period when the breeders were sort of forming their identity, the, the first couple of records for the breeders. Right. Um, she was finding her legs as a band leader. Mm -hmm. And in a, there were several instances where people that she was working with in a professional capacity were like trying to direct her, like, mm -hmm. or like, a, like an engineer or a producer was trying to sort of call the shots on a session. Right. Right. And she bristled at that and it just sort of hardened her. Good. And yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And she just rejects that completely. And I have the, there's nobody that I admire more than Kim Deal in music. Nobody in music has done a more consistently unique, personal body of work that is all to a very, very, very high standard. Like nobody's even close, right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. Yeah. <laughs> somebody who's extremely meticulous about how her records are made. Right. And I, I consider it a privilege to work on her music because if you get to a point where she says, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. That's exactly it. It's that's like better than winning a fucking Grammy to me. Mm -hmm. Like Tim yeah. Deal, yeah, we, that sounds good. Like, that, you know, yeah. Like I can go to, I can sleep soundly. You know? <laughs> You're all fucked the Grammys. Kim Deal thought that the, the drum sound was good. So we're good. <laughs> so speaking of interference, um, 
I you you had written this essay back in 1993, the problem with music. Um, I read that in 1997, uh, and I had only been playing guitar and bass for like a year or two. And that article, you you, it was so honest and to the point. It was all it was like unflinching about the real issues in the music industry, how labels work, how you did all the math on how much money things cost, and how. Uh, that that article kind of crushed my dreams of ever being in a rock band, um, <laughs> but in a good oh. way. And I say that I say that in a good way because um, it it actually I think anytime someone picks up an instrument, they think they're going to be into a band and they want they want to do this probably for the wrong reasons, especially in my generation. Well, I think there's a there's a corollary to to that essay that essay was intended to be a warning to my peers yeah yeah that there there had been developing in the underground a gradual sort of creeping professionalism where yeah yeah right right when punk rock happened it was all underground people who were just barely getting their shit together who could barely play who could barely get a show together who could who there would barely be an audience and there would only be part of a pa like that's like the punk rock experience is everything half-assed and homemade and very nearly incomplete, right? Then as the music scene sort of progressed and a lot of the people from the punk rock era sort of graduated into a more professional environment, right? That those attitudes started to infect the rest of the underground. Like yeah. people started getting managers and agents and publicists and, um, you know, started having aspirations about getting signed to a big record label because- yeah, yeah. The idea with the idea that we're doing great here in the underground, mm-hmm. if we just get into the big picture record label, then we'll be on easy street, right? Mm-hmm. Like it oh, sucks yeah, to have okay. to play all of these shows for a few hundred dollars a night just to be able to make rent. Where if we just get one of these fucking arena tours where we, you know, ride in the Cush tour bus from arena to arena. Uh, and then the money just rolls in and also like we'll have this massive record deal. We can't help but sell a lot of records and make a lot of money that sort of thing. Like those, that kind of thinking poisoned the behaviors of a lot of the people in the underground yeah. thinking yeah. That they could graduate to the mainstream music business. And it would be for as much of a falderall as it was for as much of like an extravagance as it was, it would also be that much more lucrative. Right, 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 right. Absolutely not true. (laughs) Essentially what happened to all of these underground bands that got signed was they got signed to a term that they never completed because they were either dropped or broke up before the, the, due to their music not being suitably popular Mm -hmm. in context of a mainstream record label. Yep. Whereas if they had sold the same number of records on an independent label, it, they would have been treated as a resounding success. Yeah. 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 So what I was getting at with that essay was that if you keep your shit together, you can make a reasonable living here in the underground. Right. You do things on an independent level, keep your efficiency high and you can make pretty good money. Right. You won't be famous. 
you know, you're not going to be on the fucking Letterman show or whatever. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Videos won't get played on MTV, but you can tour nine months out of the year and play in front of people who want to see you. And will every one of those people will buy a fucking t-shirt from you. Like mm -hmm. you can do that. And that's a, an attainable existence, right? But if you go up to the big leagues where now you're competing with REM and fucking, yeah. you know, like you're competing with people who have a mass general appeal, right? You're going to get destroyed. And that's what happened to all of these bands is they got signed to a big record label. It, they didn't, uh, didn't achieve what the, a big record label would expect of a, of a satisfactory signing. Right. And then, they got destroyed either they got destroyed intentionally by the record label saying you can no longer record we're not giving you any money we're not releasing you from your contract you owe us money you know you're doomed or they just gave up and just said yeah fuck it this isn't this isn't the right, this isn't, yeah we can't do this anymore yeah in, in saying that um i was well, i was saying that like it kind of changed the way i looked at music at the time um it was around that time that I got like I got really fed up with seeing all the pop music on MTV and all that sort of thing. And what was you saying in that article, I started seeing some of my favorite bands experiencing firsthand, you know, especially from the late 90s, uh, all the groups that were really popular in the mid 90s who probably had no business being on a major label was now being yeah, flushed down sure. their, yeah. their toilet, you know. Um, it made me kind of, it got me into independent music. And when I say independent, I don't mean as a genre, but actual yeah. ind independent music. Yeah. So, so yeah, it kept me from wanting to be a rock star, but it actually gave me a real appreciation at a very early age um, of, of underground music. And that's basically where I am still today. So, I mean, uh, do I think, you, yeah. I think that the critical thing is that if you're managing your affairs yourself, if you're doing things on your own, like then you know implicitly how much money is being spent on your behalf and right. you know how much right, money right, right. and you can make sure that you don't outrun yourself, right? If you're in control of everything, then you can keep everything manageable. If you turn that over to other people and let them run their fantasies on you, then <laughs> yeah. it's out of your control and you can wake up one morning and be sad and be saddled with an enormous amount of debt or just be deep in a hole that you didn't dig yeah. that you will never get out of. Right. So my perspective has always been informed by coming up through punk rock and the independent music scene and doing things as simply and as efficiently as possible. And it's enabled me to stay at it day after fucking day after fucking day after, <laughs> <laughs> after day yeah, yeah. 40 yeah. Years, you know yeah so when i quit working for good when i retire and when i go deaf and fuck off to hawaii or whatever i'm gonna do <laughs> like i will have worked in music for my entire professional life yeah like, like the, the number of years you've been doing this is insane like it's it's crazy and, and this is from someone who has never tried to do it like i never tried to be a professional in music i was just mm -hmm. in bands right and i wanted to make recordings of my band and my friends bands right and that became a kind of a sideline to my regular job right and it demanded so much of my time and was earning me enough money that i could quit my regular job and i right. sort of Side armed my way into a career as a 
recording engineer. Yeah. And I just kept it the same uh, with the same frame of mind. Just like, I'm just working on the record that's in front of me right now. Right. And whoever calls on the phone, I'll answer the phone and I'll work on their record next. Right. You know, and then when I'm done with that, the phone will have rung again and I'll work on their record after that. Like that's, yeah, it's no, no more calculated than that. And it has no more like greater philosophical direction than that. It's just, I'm just, you know, I'm just humping the load. I'm just getting done what I have on my, on my schedule. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm curious about like the stuff that like I'm a big fan of and just like me being like a younger kid and stuff like that. And I'm, you know, not going to talk about like the major stuff, but like there was a minute there where like bands that were kind of underground and independent started getting bigger and they were on labels and, you know, you're being brought in by these bigger labels and stuff like that. And I, I'm curious about like, you know, with, you know, you writing that, you know, essay around 93 and you were kind of in the middle of the machine, I guess, or whatever at the point, you know, like, how did you approach those sessions? And, you know, if I could kind of give a second question, like the Bush record for me, I think is a really good album. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you have like any kind of like takeaways or nuggets from that or like, cause that was kind of when you were in the middle of just kind of, you know, yeah. with the major well, label projects type thing. You well, know? That's kind of, I mean, that, that it's true. There was a kind of a period there where I did do a few major label, major label products, projects. Yeah. Honestly, if you stack them all up, the records that I did that were on major labels, that's, there's maybe oh, like six or eight of them. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I'm not, and I wasn't trying to say that like overall. No, I'm, I was just, I'm, not, I'm not being defensive here. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. Saying. It's a small number of records that I did that were on major labels. Yeah, Given for sure. There are some people whose entire careers are working for major label projects. Yeah, yeah. You know, like my career has been working with underground bands. 100%. And there was a yeah. period there in the 90s where some of those bands had aspirations to be on a big label. And then some big label bands had aspirations to, to like emulate the behavior and the aesthetics of some of the underground bands. Yeah, I mean, and, and then for me, as like a like a junior high kid, like I maybe would have never found like Steve Albini Productions and like things like that had they had you not done some of the bigger records. You know what I mean? Like I mean, that type of situation. Bush yeah. is a pretty good example. Like, yeah, uh, they were, you know, they were formed in the English way where you have like a, a songwriter centerpiece and there's management people involved and there's a contract and then they sort of assemble a band around them. Like, like it was, it's, it's not a garage band of guys that knew each other in high school that like chewed their way up through the, you know, squats and yeah. And, like the underground scene or whatever. Yeah. It's not like that at all. Yeah. Having said that as a group of people, they gelled tremendously well. Yeah. I and, think they're, they were a really good rock band. Like, and I enjoyed my association with them tremendously. I, they treated me squarely. They never, behaved in any kind of like a devious manner to me like some yeah. fucking local punk bands that i've worked with have been more shystery and weird than Bush or Bush. Right. like cared more about their image you know right 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 and, and the thing is like at the time there was this paradigm in england where like english bands are famous in england but they can't crack america you know right right and then Bush kind of turned that on their head, on its head by like coming to America and actually doing the legwork. Like they did tour after tour after tour, like nose to tail. They'd go all the way around the country 
when they finished, they'd go all the way around the country again. And right. then they take a couple weeks off and then go all the way around the country again. Like they did the fucking legwork. And that's the thing that none of the other English bands were wanted to do. Like they wanted to be granted a career by de decree. Like right, right. Like the label did it for them. Yeah, you were popular. You know, yeah. like they, they wanted that to be the like a like they they get knighted and then they have then they're popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bush were the only band of that ilk, like the only band from that generation, the only English band from that generation. Right. That actually bothered to come to America and play their fucking do their burn out their shoes, you know, like they played every night. Right. 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 Every fat spot in the road, every stupid fucking radio station, you know, yeah. they would play their summer 91 X jam or whatever. Right. Like they played every one of those cattle call things where you see a hundred bands at the state fair or whatever. Like they did all of that. Right. And they, put in the time to become known and popular. And people liked them because of their music. Like right. people watched them, and saw them, listened to their music and liked them. Right. It's the most organic possible way for a band to become famous and popular. And right. if you compare that with a like fucking Oasis who were a shit band. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But like they never tried. Right. You know, they had they had a few failed attempts at touring America, but they couldn't sell a ticket. So they had to paper the room by giving free freebies away. And they were still playing to like half empty fucking halls. Right. 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 Nobody gave a shit about Oasis. Right. And that completely burned up the English music scene. Like they were they were furious that this band Bush, who were nothing in England, like they were. Yeah. They were striplings. They had no credentials whatsoever for to be British. Right. Right. And then they go to America and they just, they played shows in front of the unwashed and eventually people liked them. How, yeah, right, how right. Go, you know? Yeah. Like, so, so you, is that why, is that, oh, sorry, Coop, is that why you agreed to do the record or did you just. No, I just met them. Like I didn't know anything about them. I met them. I went to lunch with Gavin and uh, my wife came with me and my wife is a very good judge of character. Mm -hmm. And we both immediately got a very frank impression from him. Like we've, we felt like he was on the level with us yeah. and we st started talking about bands and music that we liked. And we had a lot of the same, a lot of the same influences in terms of what we liked. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like culturally he's from a, a upper crust background. So he like went to a private school and he's fucking gorgeous movie star, handsome, right. like we, <laughs> we very different lives. Right. right, right, right. Uh, so uh, we we don't have that to bond over. Like I don't know what it's like to be photogenic or to be like right, right. bored or whatever. Like I don't know what that's like. So we can't bond over those experiences. But we can like a lot of the same music and we can have the same perspective on how to go about making a record. Yeah. And I totally enjoyed working with that band. I, I thought they yeah. were a good band. I, they thought their records were credible. Like they got a lot of shit for trying to sound like Nirvana. I don't think they sounded that much like Nirvana. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, they, the music that they admired and that they were emulating is the same music that all the other bands that were around at the time liked Agreed. and admired. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, and, one, one last question about Bush, and then I promise, Coop, I'll drop it. Um, <laughs> you were, you, I think you went to Australia, and you were doing like a guest speaker situation. And where uh, the crowd was like asking you questions, you know, as they walk up to a mic type situation. And I don't want you to throw them under the bus or anything like that. But 
somewhere in the interview, you were like, you know, I was producing this, you know, major label record and the single they wanted to put out sounded exactly like the Pixies. Were yeah. you referring to Bush or were you talking oh, yeah. about Swallowed? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. I guessed yeah. it. I knew well, the, it. I knew it, but I just had to confirm. I just had to confirm I, it. I, I've told this story a few times and it's yeah. it sort of relates to something we talked about earlier where like right. bands shouldn't look to me for advice. Right, right. right. They're going to know their own music better than I am. Right. And they're going to have a better grasp on what they do and don't like than right. I am. Right. Uh, so I'm toward the end of the Bush album that I've been working on. It, this was another fairly extent. It, like we did a, a month's worth of work, took a break, came back, did another month's worth of work, and yeah. then the record was done. Right? Yeah. Toward the end of that second month, which is a long period of time for me to be working on a record, like eight weeks mm. is a long stretch for me to be working on a record. For sure, for sure. So, but by then we'd gotten to know each other. We were comfortable being frank with each other. Like we could, they could shoot down my ideas. I could shoot down their ideas. Everything was comfortable. We were sort of peers as it were. Yeah. Um, and they said, well, we've got 16 or 17 songs here. We only need 10 or 12 for the record. So why don't you guys, why don't we all write up a, 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 a set list for the record, like a, a sequence for the record. Yeah. Like a track listing. Yeah. And that way we'll figure out like a consensus of like, what are the good songs and what are the bad songs? Yeah. And they asked me to do one. They asked me to write up a sequence for the record. Oh, that's I said, cool. Man, leave me out of this. This is your record. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, no, 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 don't worry. We won't, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to hold you to it or anything. We just want to know, you know, you're another person, you have an opinion, let's hear it. So yeah. like, okay, whatever. Not under protest, but reservedly, I did right. it. Right, right. And so, and that the song, there was a song, Swallowed, which they had been working on. Yeah. It had been kind of grinding away at. They'd done several versions of it, taken a lot of time for them to get satisfied with it. Yeah. I thought it was a turkey from like the first moment <laughs> I heard it. Yeah. Maybe you saying that from the interview. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you, the band Bush, you get shit for sounding like these American bands. Like right. they, they, people are quick to jump on you for trying to emulate these American bands. Hmm. This is a Pixie song that you're playing. It right. sounds like <laughs> right. the Pixies, got the aesthetic of the Pixies. If you put this song out, you're going to get fucking barbecued. Right. <laughs> right. Also, I didn't think it was that good. So anyway, um, <laughs> we had this conversation. We've had these conversations. Yeah. So I did a sequence for the album. I left that song off of it. Uh, and then everybody else in the room, all the other band members, the assistant engineer on the session, the guy from their record label, or I'm mean, not their record label, the guy from their manager. Yeah. The manager guy who was a friend, old friend of theirs. Yeah. Everybody else had that song swallowed, song one, side one. Like everybody else was like, yeah. This is <laughs> Put it at the front. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, we, we have a difference of opinion. You right. Know? <laughs> yeah. And then, so ultimately, of course, the albums, album came out with their sequence, one of their sequences assembled the way they wanted it. Yeah. And that song was the first single on the album, and it was their first number one single. Yeah, it was like track three on the album. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it worked, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can't get a better description of why I don't make hit records. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> here, is, here is a future number one single. Everyone in the room is saying, this is a great song. Yeah, this you're is like, get it off the fucking album. <laughs> and I'm the only guy who's like, eh, pass. You know? 
<laughs> All right, Coop, I'm done talking about Bush. Steve, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> well, look, John, he's our resident guy who likes the band Bush. I, I do. Personally... I think they're a good band. I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay. I, have, I have no beef with band Bush. I, 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 I've seen them live a few times. I think they're a good band. Like, I have yeah. no reservations about that band. Yeah. I uh, now now you here's where where Steve will choke me because I actually have a Nirvana question. Oh God, here we go. <laughs> thing to ask me is a Nirvana question. Totally normal thing to ask. <laughs> For those listening who may not know, uh, Nirvana when they recorded uh, in utero with Steve, some people at the label originally didn't like the record, and they uh, it kind of caused like a panic, and they was actually pushing for people first them to re-record the album. Yeah, uh, but I guess they found a good happy medium and had uh, another guy to come in and mix the singles yes, from yeah. from from the record. The, the, can I, I just want to point out the the way you're framing that makes it sound like Nirvana accepted a compromise. Oh and no, no, I, no, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think Nirvana decided that that's what they were going to do. Okay, okay, yeah, right. I don't I don't want to leave the impression that Nirvana were bending to the will. Of oh, the, right. I, don't, I, I absolutely don't think that that's the case at all. Yeah. To, to expand Understood. on that, uh, to expand on that for that reason, there's no way that Nirvana would have bent to that will anyway, or they, they wouldn't probably wouldn't have had Steve Albini produce the record. So that, that was like a big win for the underground scene of, have, of this guy producing the record, the biggest rock group at the time. When, when that, the singles off that album kind of took off on mainstream radio. I imagine you probably didn't listen to a lot of mainstream radio. Did you, did you particularly care for the mixes that were, that Scott lit did for that record? I mean, they're not, they're not that different really. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, none of it, none of it bothered me. Right. What bothered me was the sort of political aspect of that whole deal where the record label was trying to scapegoat me and use that bad publicity as leverage on Nirvana to get them to do something they didn't want to do. Like that whole aspect of it was just garbage. Like, and every single person that worked with Nirvana and every, every single person in their orbit was complicit in that kind of behavior and is a piece of shit. And you know, should, should be ashamed. <laughs> that, you know? right. that actually really does fucking suck. Like in yeah. hindsight, so, it fucking sucks. Like, so, but the band, my relationship with the band like took a beating because they were under a lot of pressure and, mm-hmm everyone was telling them that I'd fucked up their record and you know, like they, it's only natural to have doubts and reservations after you've done your record. Like that's a totally normal part of getting comfortable with the record you just made is having some reservations about it and then working through those one way or another. Right. Right. So like I have, I have no beef with Nirvana. Nirvana were fair to me. They were like honest with me. They treated me fine. Everybody that worked with Nirvana is a piece of shit and should f- jump on the fucking lake. You know, like I, I don't, I wouldn't piss on them if they were burning. None of the people that worked with them were acting in Nirvana's best interest. They were all acting in this kind of a really money self-preservation kind of way where they were like, they wanted to somehow, they wanted to take authorship of the record away from Nirvana so that right. yeah. if it was successful, they could claim to be responsible for its success. And if it was a failure, they could say, well, at least we were able to get it out of their hands. And, you know, it would, it would have been so much worse otherwise. They, like they, they wanted to somehow take authorship of that record away from Nirvana. Right, right. And I have no respect for that as a, as a, a course, as a way of behaving or as a, a mindset. I just don't, don't have any respect for that. How were, the, how were the remaster sessions? Were those fun or painful? Or... 
Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Like I had it sort of preliminarily, I had long conversations with uh, Chris Novoselich over the phone about like what they wanted to achieve with the remasters and the, yeah. like what, what, what were they trying to do? Yeah. And I gave them my opinion about like, listen, if you want to make the most hi-fi possible version of this record, the, the one that you can say, this is the definitive version of that record. Yeah. These are the steps we should take. We should do a double 12 inch. So you don't have it like have the, the record crammed onto a single LP. Yeah. Yeah. You should cut it at 45 and you should do it all DMM direct metal copper mastering. And they took all of that advice. They did all of those things. I honestly don't know how to make a better record than that deluxe edition of the, the 20th yeah. deluxe yeah. edition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that Nirvana record. I, I cannot think of anything that could have been done to make a better, more faithful um, version of that record. Cool. And cool. They really went to bat and the record label like kind of was kind of short arming, arming them about the money. Like, I don't think that they knew that it would sell as well as it was mm -hmm. going to, that, it, that I mean, you would have to sell it for a lot of money. And at the time, 2013, like record prices hadn't escalated quite as Dave much. Grohl didn't step in with his Foo Fighter money and say like, I'm doing it my way. <laughs> I mean, he's probably going to want to keep his Foo Fighter money. <laughs> That's true. But anyway, so the, the, that was a great experience. Like I got to hang out with um, Chris and Dave and Pat Smear for a few days while we worked on the, the new alternate mixes. Um, there, everybody was very open-minded about everything. The, Why the was Pat there? He didn't even play on the album. He just came to hang out or I mean, he was in the band at the end. And well, I know a, that. I know that. He just was a confidant and, okay. you know, and, cool. and cool. Grohl had been playing with him for yeah. decades. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Just, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, it comes back down to uh, kind of like what the, what your article was saying when you, when you're talking about interference and all that. Um, so it, you kind of champion with that, with, within utero on that because it's a fantastic record. And I mean, my uh, sympathies are always with the band. Yeah. Right. Like right the sure. band, like they dreamed this music up out of nothing and they are the people who animated this music and turned mm -hmm. it into something that other people could appreciate like that. It's their project. It's their life's work. Yep. And at, when we were working on the record in Minnesota, the, when we were working on in utero at the time, like, Chris Novoselic said, in all seriousness, he's like, listen, man, we have to take this record to our graves. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. Like, this is a statement from the band. Right, right. right. Going, for the rest of their lives, they're going to have they're going to have that record as part of their legacy. So, like, I appreciated the way that they handled that, the 2013 stuff. Yeah. Like, they were very, like, they were fair with me. They were reasonable. All the conversations that we had were all, like, very frank and very... Like I, I didn't get the impression they were being guarded about anything. Yeah. And we sort of rekindled a friendship and I, you know, I have a lot of respect for them as a band. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Serve the Servants is my favorite song off that record. And I think that should have been the lead single. <laughs> 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 With that essay that you wrote about the, the bands and all that thing that we just talked about earlier, do you think that still applies today in the streaming world or maybe even more so? You know, I don't 
I don't I don't have a strong handle on the streaming world. Like the streaming streaming money is piddly compared to record money or touring money. Yeah, right. So I, I tend not to take it that seriously. It's kind of like the radio. Like I never cared if my bands got played on the radio because we didn't make any money from getting played on the radio. So why why should I care? You know, like I'm the same way about streaming. Like the money that you get paid for streams is just so puny. Yeah. Like who cares? Like yeah, play it, don't play it. I don't give a fuck. Right. We should, <laughs> Black's music and I took all of Big Black's music off of Spotify just because I don't want to participate in Spotify as a business. I think they're an atrocious business. Yeah, no shit. They've underwritten some really atrocious things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have suborned and underwritten Joe Rogan, who I think is a singularly destructive force, especially mm-hmm. during COVID yeah. Europe. Yeah. Um, so like I just don't want to have any and and the the way that that company is structured where all the big record labels got ownership and Spotify in exchange for these really parsimonious deals where the bands get paid essentially nothing for their streams. Yeah. That makes Spotify more profitable, which means then that the record labels make more money from their equity in the company. Yep. Like all of that, that whole scene, everything about it is just atrocious and I don't want to have anything to do with it. I, I don't want to be a part of that business. I think that business is, unethical and uns- uh, unsupportable. And I just don't want to have anything to do with it. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. It's going to cost, it's going to cost my band some money, but because streaming doesn't pay that well, it's not going to cost as much money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. More, Makes sense. If we do one gig on a tour, we'll have more than covered what we made from Spotify. Yeah. Speaking sense. of tour, is uh, Shellac going to do any shows this year? We have, Several tours on the books. Oh, Uh, April, we're going to Ireland and the UK. In May, we're going to Europe. Then in August and September, we're going to do a West Coast tour that has had been rescheduled from this year, Mm -hmm. from uh, 2021. And that 2021 tour was rescheduled from 2020. So right, right. Uh, it was twice defeated by COVID and we're hoping that the hat trick will make it through. Cool. Uh, I hope so too, man. I haven't seen a show since 2019. Riot Fest of 2019 was the last show I went to. And My uh, band, Shellac, was actually on tour in Mar- March of um, 2020. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jesus, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had a, a... Was it March of 2020 or 2020? I can't remember. March of 2020 is when everything pretty much shut down. Yeah. Yeah. So if, yeah, let's assume, yeah. So we were on tour in March of 2020 and we interrupted our tour. Like we just didn't complete it. We didn't do the last show. Um, because it was obvious that it wasn't safe to be congregating people. Right. And we were just like, yeah, fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. And it was kind of weird to, to be like at the beginning of the tour, people were kind of joking about it like two weeks prior. Like people oh yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, China recently. You're gonna get that. You're gonna get that. Yeah, you know? yeah. And gradually, people started being more reserved. Like people like stopped shaking hands. Like nobody yeah. hugging. Like people were, you know, when we were selling shirts and stuff, we would like elbow bump people rather than shake their hands. Yeah. Um, sanitizing your hands and washing your hands constantly. Yeah. And we did it. the The real wake up call for me was we did a couple of shows in Chicago. And the next night we played in uh, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And the, when we booked the show in Milwaukee, it was booked at a fairly small venue and it sold out immediately. So they moved it to a larger venue. 
and that tickets had sold well for that larger venue. It wasn't sold out or anything, but it was going to be fun. And when we played the show, it was like, man, this is kind of sparse, you know? Like oh, like just, people bought tickets but didn't come out. Yeah, okay. You know, we talked to the promoter after the show when we were doing the settlement after the show. He said, yeah, we had 230 no-shows. Yeah, oh, that's big. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Bought tickets to a show and then just said, yeah, I don't, I, I, it's not I don't safe. I don't want to get sick. Yeah. I'm yeah. Ask for my money back. I'm just not going. That's crazy. Yeah. And that was like a real wake up call. The next night was in Madison and something similar happened, slightly smaller scale. Yeah. And after that was meant to be in Minneapolis, but it, we just pulled the plug. Um, I think Minneapolis also banned large gatherings at, at that point. Yeah. I, I went to a show March 9th in 2020. It was Cult of Luna and Intronaut. And it was a very strange vibe. Like it was still pretty crowded, but like everybody, you just kind of felt like I, it's dangerous to be here type situation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I felt like that in any group setting in the last two years. I have been, <laughs> Seriously. I, I wear, Seriously. I wear an 95 and mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't I don't get into group settings that often. I try right. to avoid and, and at the studio, we're very, you know, we try to be as careful as, as we're allowed to be or as we can be really. Right. Everything has to be masked. We have to, we test every large group. Yeah. Um, we, you know, all of our staff are masked all the time. Everybody has to be masked in all the common areas. We do have a disinfection regimen after each session. Like we're, as, we're, we're careful and conscientious about it, but it, it, there's still a feeling of unease for me whenever I'm in a large group of people. Whenever, yeah. whenever I'm in the company of a lot of people that I don't know. Yep. Um, I agree. I'll feel very uncomfortable. Yep. And I think I will until we've had a few seasons where there is no COVID flare up. Yeah. A couple summers maybe or something. I'm going to feel pretty weird going to one, but I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of recording, we I, I know that you uh, you like to play poker. I'm uh, <laughs> And you've done pretty well with that. Uh, so when cool. <laughs> I when I when I think of poker, I think of Las Vegas, and yeah. when I think of Las Vegas, I think of a horrible movie that me and John <gasps> both. Kelly, you just called it horrible. This it's, is like our shtick, Steve. So just prepare st- yourself. Okay, we ha- I have to ask because you're a guest on the show. What do you think of the movie if you've seen it, Showgirls from 1995? <laughs> <laughs> Very briefly, my my wife was kind of in a low key way obsessed with that film. Oh, oh yes. yes! You're our first guest that like yes. even will acknowledge the movie. Yes. <laughs> we have it. I think we have it on VHS. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and I've, I'll have to say I have seen it, and I understand. And I understand there are some friends of mine, like my friend Dan Koretsky. He's a, a, an enthusiast for that film. Like he would, go, he would end that film in, in in public forums and stuff. Um. I think I get what people like about it, but I don't like it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible movie, but I love it because it's terrible. Coop, you're saying such negative things. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the movie. Um, but yeah, is that, uh, that that movie screams Las Vegas to me? You- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's uh, Steve's thoughts on Albini. His wife was obsessed with that movie. She, well, she was kind of obsessed with it for I think for all the same reasons that you guys are, just like how incredibly tacky. Everybody. 
yeah kind of it. it's it's an amazing it's an amazing piece of work it's just that's yeah. all I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> well you could tell your wife that john and coop give her fist bumps <laughs> <laughs> you got to break the vhs out again steve one more time yeah. it's time to dust it off <laughs> uh, okay <laughs> <No>. <laughs> fair enough fair enough um so i'm, I'm good at the show girls i think <laughs> <laughs> what's the next what's next for uh shellac you going to be hitting uh do recording your own music for a while or? We, well we finished when when we were on tour in the spring of 2020 or whatever mm-hmm. right our intention was to finish that tour go straight into the studio and finish an album that we had been working on sort of piecemeal yeah and we were ready to go at that time and then when we canceled our tour in the fall mm. um we used that time instead to finish recording on an album. So we have an album that's essentially done. Like it's okay, all over. Hell yeah. Uh, that's awesome. May, except for getting it made, which is really problematic these days. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have an album of un- other, you know, new material. I mean, for us, new material can often be like seven or eight years old. Right. Like, <laughs> I've been working on this song. The, for, yeah. The first session for this album, the first sessions that we did for this album were in 2017. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And we were recording the four songs that we had been playing live for a few years at that point. Right, right, right. So, uh, like, we're, you know, this, yes, it's all new material, but new just means it hasn't been recorded previously. It's not new in calendar terms. Like, some of these songs are 10 years old. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Still stoked to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, I, I want to say I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the show. Yes, um, Steve, thanks, thanks a bunch, man. Yeah, no thank you for uh, thank you for being a. It sounds really gushy to say, especially at the end of this uh, podcast, but uh, thank you for being a big part of the soundtrack of my life. <laughs> Seriously, you know. Yeah. You know? Yep. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, well, um, everyone listening, uh, after you turn off this podcast, go listen to Shellac or one of the thousands of records that uh, Steve Albini has engineered over uh, the, the vast career of his. <laughs> Honestly, Steve, like tonight was, it, this was cool. And I really appreciate you being as like open and approachable and like all that stuff. Like I yeah, mentioned I, with I'm other sorry. bands and stuff. So like, I'm really just sorry. Cool. It took us so long that I wasted so much of your time waiting on me. That's all. Oh, <laughs> not, not a, like, honestly. Hey. Yeah. Look, we're all we're all we're not we're not a Joe Rogan's here on this show. <laughs> you know, I uh, I live on the south side of Chicago. I live out here in the sticks. So, and John, he's oh, I just watch Showgirls when I'm waiting when I'm waiting for our guests to come. I just watch, I spit on Showgirls. It's fine, no big deal. We're uh, we're we're very DIY. So, uh, it's no no. We understand how timing works and all that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to say thank you again. Um, yeah, Steve, thanks a bunch, man. Yeah, thank you for all the all the music and uh we'll i'll send you a link when this goes up and maybe you can give it a listen or whatever you want to do and um but yeah go listen to some shellac listen to some steve albini man yeah go get it (laughs) thank you steve appreciate it thank you so much sir see ya uh well that was what a nice guy yeah he was he was (laughs) he really was like I was I was I was nervous because I admire him so much. Yeah, me too. Me too. And you know, 
I think that he's so down to earth that maybe if you get into a situation where you're kind of like over complimenting him, he's probably going to maybe, you know, push back on that a little bit. But I think, I think he was, he was really fun to like talk to. And I think that my favorite part was he was very forthcoming with just information. Like you get him right. started on a subject and he will share, yeah. he will share like the details or whatever. You know yeah. What I mean? It's funny because I had like a billion things I was going to ask him, but all the stuff he was talking about, he was talking about him anyway. Yeah. So I was like marking off notes the whole time. So yeah, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was cool. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think that's like, you know, after the fact is I'm so happy about it. It's like stuff that I was wanted to talk to him about. He got to just by me asking just an initial question. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was cool. Super cool. Like I, I'm like, like a bucket list kind of situation. I'm yeah. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get to talk to Steve Albini about Nirvana, even though he's talked about him for a billion years. And yeah. But, and the and same I, and, but I feel like too, like, even though maybe he's, you know, fielded s- similar questions or whatever, like, he still tries to give you like a different something, yeah. something that maybe he hasn't said on a different interview or podcast or anything like that. You right. know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So, so uh, th- that'll about wrap it up for uh, this, this episode of the crush Monocle podcast, please like, and share, smash the like button, all that social media stuff. Uh, subscribe to us on Apple, the evil Spotify and any other service you get podcast. And if you leave a comment, you have to tell us who your first wet dream was about. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it until people start participating. Yeah. Uh, My next wet dream is going to be a Gavin Rosdell talking to Steve Albini during lunch about their, about razor blade suitcase. Uh, uh, Gavin Rosdale, if you're listening to this, would you please come on the Crush Monocle podcast? <laughs> yeah, come on, so, come on. So we can ask you about showgirls. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll see you guys uh, on the next episode. This is uh, Coop. I'm the other guy. My name's John. Hi. Hello. That's John, the other guy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, peace out. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>